You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed mind Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Atticus World This Week. Uh, this uh, program's coming to you somewhere in the ether from the studios of Radio 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Jason Toscano, and I'm hosting this program. If you wonder what anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers. So what is the anarchist uh, project? Very simple, to create a society without rulers. What creates rulers? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the struggle to devolve power that share wealth and to hold... devolve power, which is to share power and to hold wealth in common the central element of the anarchist struggle. So if you're involved in struggle to share wealth and uh, share power, well, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, under that definition, you're an anarchist. That's right. So welcome to, our, welcome to all our uh, listeners across Australia via the Community Radio Network, obviously. Uh, we may have a few technical issues as we can't uh, broadcast from the studio. And if the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the corporate-owned media, has technical issues, uh, it's not unusual for a uh, community radio network that runs on the smell of an oily rag to uh, have technical issues. Um, hopefully we won't have any, but uh, off we go. Now, I, I'm interested in um, how everybody's talking about social and affordable housing. And I never expected the CFMNEU, that's Construction, Forestry, Maritime, uh, Mining and Energy Unions, coming together with their, with their uh, employers' association, uh, calling for uh, social and affordable housing. And I'm thinking to myself, now, there must be a reason for this. And the reason's very simple. They're running out of work. Now, the construction industry, the mining industry and agriculture have been three of the main industries that have continued to chat along uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, while hospitality, arts and entertainment, uh, restaurants, food, etc., have taken the brunt, uh, recreational industries have taken the brunt of the, uh, of the economic uh, damage. But the dilemma is, with a lack of money, and with current projects running uh, on time or running before time, and they're going to finish the next few months, possibly in the next six to 12 months, they'll all be finished. And the fact that the private housing market has gone into a uh, nosedive and will continue to go into a nosedive as banks kind of 
kind of, uh, you know, uh, very wary about lending people money and not many people have the resources to pay cash, have the money there in reserve. Uh, obviously, the CFMEU understands that their members are going to face unemployment in the next six months or so. So, an area which is we've which has been highlighted during the COVID-19 crisis is uh, is social and affordable housing. Now, I find it extraordinary that a radical union like CFMEU is calling for social and affordable housing because social and affordable housing, as you know, and as we've said on this program for a number of years is privately owned housing. It's privately managed and privately owned. And governments across Australia, especially the Victorian government, have been doing everything they can to privatise public housing and transfer uh, public housing, uh, even the uh, title to public housing, into the hands of uh, social and affordable housing associations, which are basically private organisations, whether for-profit or not-for-profit, which are there basically to look after the organisation. So why isn't the CFMEU calling for public housing? I mean, public housing is a state issue. Uh, federal government puts in a fair bit of money into uh, so-called public housing, uh, into uh, homelessness, and also puts money into rent assistance uh, for people who are on Social Security benefits to assist them to uh, enter the private rental market. So I would have expected the CFMEU, considering its proud radical past, to be calling for more public housing, to be calling for more government intervention in the housing market, to actually see the expansion of the public housing sector and uh, the creation of new public housing. It's quite extraordinary, as far as I'm concerned, for them to be uh, you know, um, working with the employers and promoting social and affordable housing, which is basically private housing. That's something to think about. Now, I'm, I'm, during this program, I know you're all bored with uh, COVID-19, and I know you're bored with social isolation. I know you're kind of, you know, looking around to do something. What I'm going to try to do in this program today is actually look at some other issues which seem to have uh, fallen away. Climate change, climate emergency. Now, climate change and the climate emergency hasn't really gone away, although one unexpected uh, positive consequence of the COVID-19 crisis is the decrease in uh, industrial and production activity, which has actually decreased the amount of CO2 emissions which are being pumped out into the atmosphere, but that's not going to last forever. And... As I've said on this program and many other programs over the last few years, is that the climate emergency is not just a matter of increased temperature and the fact that increased temperature has significant impacts on the human population and has significant impacts on uh, has significant impacts on the environment and the animal population. But my major concern is, as we've seen, is with the increasing population growth and the encroachment of the natural environment, that the biggest threat we face is a series of pandemics, not just COVID-19, which is a relatively minor pandemic, especially if uh, people take the government putting the right precautions at the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic, that you can actually minimise the 
people damage and the health damage, although you can't minimise the economic damage to a country. But my concern is that this is just the first. It's not a one in a hundred year event. You know, the Spanish flu in 1919 and COVID-19 crisis in December 1919. Not just a one in a hundred year event. Increasing temperatures are the type of environment which is required for a bacteria and viruses to uh, replicate. And I think the greatest threat we face uh, from climate change is not just the direct impact that CO2 emissions have on human health, but the fact that it changes the climate, it changes the environment, it changes the interaction between human beings and the natural environment, it promotes the growth of uh, viruses and bacteria in the long term, which uh, are more likely to have a uh, immediate impact on the population. I think one thing we need to remember is that climate, the climate emergency has not gone away. It is still there. And it's quite extraordinary in this period that we've seen a lot of uh, companies, especially those in the forestry industry, using the, uh, the COVID-19 crisis to cover to uh, increase their activity. So this is something we need to keep our eye on. Because there's a COVID-19 crisis, it doesn't mean that everything else has disappeared. Every problem we had before, significant degree, still here with a COVID-19 crisis overlay. Now, I've kept saying over the last few weeks that we are in the honeymoon phase of the COVID-19 crisis. Obviously, it's not a honeymoon if you're one of the 250,000 people that have died in the last six weeks from COVID-19. And it's not a honeymoon if you're uh, one of the uh, people who've got sick and now has recovered or still has symptoms, the three million that have, around the world that have got sick or the 6,500 people in Australia that have uh, con uh, contracted COVID-19. But as far as the economy is concerned, we are in for a huge struggle because listening to a federal treasurer and listening to the information and the little kites that have been flown in the media by the Morrison-led federal government, it's obvious they are going to use this opportunity to ram through the anti-union legislation, which is on the back burner, to ram through legislation uh, to destroy the independence of what, what's left of the independence of the Fair Work Commission, to deregulate the economy, which is a fancy word, to remove the rules uh, that have protected us, uh, protect working people for so long in this country. So listen to the words, listen to the words, and it's the same message. Privatisation, deregulation, corporatisation, globalisation. Although loop service is paid to uh, local manufacturing, we're talking about boutique local manufacturing employing a few, a few thousand people, maybe a few tens of thousands of people. But no real change. It's business as usual as they are, as they think. And if you look at their policies, it's all a matter of actually accelerating the agenda which has been pursued by both Liberal National Party government, Liberal National Party governments and Labor governments at the federal level in this country for the last 40 years, and that's privatisation, 
the first cab off the rank is going to be the NBN, which has served Australia so well over the last uh, few weeks. That's the first cab off the rank. There's 40 to $50 billion to be made by privatising the NBN. And it's always been government policy that once the NBN has been... Uh, Australia has been, has been crisscrossed Australia, that it will be privatised. Uh, and you have to actually look at their uh, globalisation agenda. They are very keen to not manufacture locally, although they're giving lip service to that idea, but are very keen to restart that um, export market that is such an important part of this country's uh, business model. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting this program. If you want a few interesting websites you want to go to, you can go to my personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. You can go to the Public Interest Before you before Corporate Interest YouTube ta- channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. I attempt to do one YouTube presentation every week. Uh, you can um, go to the uh, Facebook pages, Defending Extend Public Housing. Public housing, everybody's business. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org, and the list goes on and on. You can always leave messages at 0439 395 489. And if you want to join public interest before corporate interest and uh, hit the ground running uh, to uh, register public interest before corporate interest for federal political party by the end of the year, uh, you can uh, always download the application form from pipcpibci.net, net, And uh, if your printer isn't working or if you've got on the internet, you can always ring me on 0439 395 489 and I'll send you out an application form or you can write to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Now, we're told that there's a million Australians are unemployed. Well, an extra million have been added to the unemployment list, and unemployment will reach between 10 and 13%. But we're actually not told about the JobKeeper allowance. At least 4.5, maybe 5, possibly 5.5 million Australians are going to be on JobKeeper, which is a $750 a week payment to employees, certain employees, not all employees, certain employees, uh, to maintain a relationship between them and their employer, and obviously the money is paid directly to the employer, who theoretically passes it on to the employee. So that with the COVID-19 crisis, uh, you know, is, is over or is manageable. COVID, it won't be over, it'll be manageable. But uh, businesses will spring back into existence. You know, they will spring back into existence as if nothing has ever changed. Well, the reality is, it's not going to happen that way. What we have basically is half of Australia's permanent and casual workforce, half of Australia's permanent residents and citizens who are in the workforce, that's six million people, either on job seeker or JobKeeper, okay? That's 50%, not 10%, not 13%. And many businesses which are currently maintaining their employees on the book because the government is paying their wages will fold. 
once the uh, economy uh, gets back on track, they will fall because the, what people have forgotten is that all this noise about rent, especially commercial rent, and let's, let's remember that most businesses, especially small businesses, which employ 5 million Australians, which is about 40% of the workforce, rent the premises they conduct their small businesses from. They rent those shop fronts, and those rents are quite extraordinary. And although you may have been able to negotiate some type of agreement not to pay rent for six months to the end of September, the reality is that over the next two years, after September, you have to pay that back rent. So when a business is faced with the calculations of paying the back rent, paying the current rent, paying their staff, restarting their business, many businesses will decide to close their doors when the job seeker payment ends at the end of September this year. They will close their doors and then we'll have a real understanding of uh, you know of unemployment levels in this country, and I expect they'll be around 20% by the end of the year. Not 5% or 10%, but around 20%, because once the job seeker allowance is terminated, many businesses will close shop, or they may reopen for a short period of time and find people's uh, spending habits have changed. There won't be as much discretionary income all the deregulation that's in the pipeline and the de-union, uh, union-busting measures that are in the legislative pipeline will mean that wages will fall. Uh, we've had stagnant wage growth for over a decade, but I'm talking about falling wages, and uh, we may find, and with a high unemployment level, uh, it's quite likely that wages will fall. There won't be as much discretionary income, and a lot of these small businesses will go to the wall, including the people that they employ. So, as I said, the honeymoon phase nearly over. Okay, while you can, while you're getting that job keeper allowance, or, you're, or if you're lucky enough to get a job keeper allowance, or even a job seeker allowance. Okay, while you can, because at the end of September, as far as this government is concerned, it's finished. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano and I'm hosting today's program. Now, there have been winners in the COVID-19 crisis. There have been winners. And most of the winners that I've seen are those mega, mega corporations which dominate the virtual skyline. And it's extraordinary to see the number of uh, people who are delivering meals to people around this country, delivering meals on little bikes, scooters, delivering meals. And so these delivery apps, which have an exceptionally poor reputation as far as their workers are concerned, because their workers, as far as they're concerned, are individual contractors who are responsible for their sick pay, their insurance, their taxes, and the list goes on and on, are making a killing. They're charging up to 30%. That's right, 30%. Uh, are charging small businesses up to 30% in order to, um, you know, in order to deliver meals. Can you imagine that? Very lucrative. 
they're doing exceptionally well. Another group that's doing exceptionally well is Facebook, Google, as people are stuck at home, Netflix. So what we are seeing is these organisations making a killing from isolation, making a financial killing. They're not having decreased their prices. Eh? Uh, as far as delivery apps are concerned, they've kept their prices on hold. In some cases, they've increased their prices. And then you look at the major supermarkets because as people have decreased discretionary spending because there's very little to spend on and they're concentrated on supermarket shopping, you, like me, may have noticed over the last few weeks the increase in prices of many goods in the supermarket. And again, they are using this opportunity to make a buck. And let's not forget the uh, petrol industry. At a time of record low prices, although petrol prices have dropped, it's uh, quite extraordinary to see the price variation around the country as far as uh, profits are concerned. So capitalism, private uh, investment for private gain is alive and well and hoping to piggy bank off the COVID-19 crisis and increase their profits. Obviously, some industries will die, but others are really prospering from the current situation. Now, regular listeners to the Anarchist World this week will remember that I've been talking for years about temporary workers. Not migration, but temporary workers. You can call them guest workers. You can call them a multitude of visas. There are about 2 million temporary workers in this country. 2 million, okay? Uh, and basically, temporary workers are used to fill... They've got a number of, they've got a number of uses in Australian society. And uh, when we uh, entered the deregulation, uh, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation phase 40 years ago, it became very, very apparent to those in authority to the corporate sector, that in order to be able to maximise profit, they needed to destroy what once was a vibrant trade union movement in this country. It had to be destroyed. And the way you destroy the trade union movement is not just by legislation and criminalising trade union activity, by bringing in millions of temporary workers into the country to do work. It's a little bit like an economic Ponzi scheme. You bring in a temporary worker, they need to eat, they need to live somewhere. So the economy continues to grow, profits continue to be made, but they're made at the expense of the community as a whole. Now, I've got nothing against the individuals who take up those policy initiatives because those policy initiatives uh, were created by government all they're doing is trying to improve their life by uh, taking every opportunity they can. And I say good luck to them. But it is government policy to actually have a large number of temporary workers in this country. One, to artificially stimulate the economy. Two, to put downward pressure on wages. Three, to destroy trade, the trade union movement or collective bargaining in this country. So temporary workers have done that job. And it's quite interesting, the disdain with which government treats temporary workers. Although there are 
2 million temporary workers legally in this country and a very small number illegally, but 2 million legally in this country with all the right documentation, the federal government made the decision not to assist these people during this critical stage. They need to pay their rent, they need to pay their school fees, their university fees, they need to eat. So what happens is they're driven into the arms of the delivery apps. They're driven into the arms of the... uh, you know, the new, the so-called new economy, which is basically the 19th century uh, economy. They're driven to the arms of these people in order to survive. So they're ripe for exploitation, and it's a huge issue. Now, it's interesting that parts of the Australian Labor Party have actually began to see uh, that we need to do something, not necessarily about migration, but about temporary visa holders who are basically brought across as I said before, for three reasons. One, to put downward pressure on wages and keep wages down. That's been done very successfully. Two, to destroy trade union membership because most of these people do not join trade union. And three, uh, to actually have a pool of cheap labour which can be exploited. And this is nothing new. Uh, This type of thing has been happening since uh, Federation where uh, groups of temporary workers are brought in, uh, their labour exploited and then uh, expelled from the country once their visas run out, although there are mechanisms by which some can become, a small percentage can become permanent residents. So this is a real issue. It is a real issue that's, uh, that we need to look at. And let's not forget it was the Howard government which exploded migration. They exploded migration and they weren't interested in asylum seekers and refugees, which in my opinion should make the backbone of any migration program to this country. People who need to come to this country for, to be protected and to build new lives, who make wonderful uh, migrants and wonderful members of the community because they have trouble going back to their original communities. But, but what we have been doing is we have been stealing skilled workers from overseas, overseas workers that have trained in uh, developing nations are then uh, brought into this country so we don't have to waste any money uh, high, uh, training uh, Australian permanent residents or citizens to take up highly skilled jobs. I'll give you an example. Now, I graduated from Queensland University in 1975. I think Queensland had a population of around 2 million in 1975. I graduated as a medical practitioner. Now, we had 180 people graduate after that six-year study, 180 new doctors for a population of 2 million. In 2010, Queensland, although the population had doubled, the number of doctors that were trained in Queensland had, were down to 100 every year. Could you imagine that? 100. So the reality is that uh, the, 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 the shortfall, and we see it with medical staff, nursing staff, paramedical staff, and the list goes on and on, the shortfall has been made by immigration. And the same goes for uh, fruit picking, uh, nursing homes, and again, the common denominator is non-unionised, poorly paid, exploited labour. And that's what this country, economic uh, fortunes have been built on over the last three to four decades. And I think 
the COVID-19 crisis does give us an opportunity to uh, re-evaluate that. So let's think about it. It's going to be one of the big uh, talking points over the next few years. And I think it's important that we, uh, we don't allow the racists to actually dominate that discussion. It's very easy to use uh, racial analogies in this situation, but what we've got to understand is people are here legally, they've got legal visas, this is a government-engineered program in order to maximise profits uh, for their uh, corporate mates. You're listening to Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is being broadcast from the EFA outside the studios of Community Radio, somewhere outside the studios of Community Radio 3 East in Melbourne. Uh, if you want to join public interest before corporate interest, and I'd like to thank all those people who have expressed interest in the last few weeks, download the application form from pipsy.net. Pipsy.net. Haven't got a printer? Can't download the form? Give me a ring. 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Leave a message and I'll get back to you and send you out some application forms. Haven't got a phone? No internet connection where you are? You can always use Australia Post. It'll take about two weeks to get a letter delivered from one side of the country to the next, but you can always write to me at Post Office Box 20. Parkville, 30552. All right, let's move on. Now, I think maybe we'll move on to something I've been thinking about the last few months, and I've been trying to formulate ideas around it, because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the concept of belief. Because what I've noticed is, over the last few decades, especially in the last few years, is the growth of the uh, World Wide Web and the so-called democratisation of information is the rise of groups that are based on very spurious belief systems. And obviously a belief is not a fact. Now, now when you look at Mr Trump and Mr Pompeii, they're, they're out like liars, OK? They lie. I mean, they don't have a belief system. Their only belief system is their own personal fortunes, right? whether they get re-elected, whether they make more money. I mean, there's a lot of people in the community that are like them or who will lie, look at you in the face and lie to you about facts and figures. Now, what made me think, brought this to the fore over the last few days, was the uh, extraordinary situation that occurred in Victoria about a week ago uh, when the Deputy health, uh, Public Health Officer, I've forgotten her name, unfortunately, uh, sent out a private tweet where she was making some analogies between the COVID-19 crisis and what actually happened with uh, European colonisation in Australia where pandemic after pandemic after pandemic, measles, smallpox, diphtheria, cholera, all these diseases which are unknown in the New World, in New Holland as it was known then, uh, destroyed the Aboriginal population. And if you're into reading uh, historical accounts, uh, when Hume and Hovel were crossing uh, Victoria looking for pasture, the sheep, uh, they uh, commented over and over again about the number of deserted uh, campsites they came across, 
the number of Indigenous people, First Nations people, they came across with uh, smallpox scars on their bodies. And obviously, it's a fact. It's a fact that when colonisation occurs anywhere in the world, uh, it's not about... Uh, it's the virus, it's the bacteria, which you basically do the work from a colonizer. Very simple. You have a uh, once vibrant population, which is reduced to a pitiful remnant, and it's very easy to deal with them in a uh, military uh, sense. So this deputy medical officer made this analogy, OK? Nothing controversial about it. I thought, well, you know, somebody should make the analogy. Somebody in authority. It's the type of thing that, you know, I do and other people involved with uh, First Nations people know, live and breathe, you know. And I thought, and then there was this huge forum, huge discussion and debate in the community about whether this doctor should have said this. I mean, these are facts which were placed. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, it is about people trying just to promote their own vote. This is the Liberal National Party, which is or the Liberal Party in Victoria, which is basically irrelevant at the minute. Or is it more? Do they have a belief system which they've created and cobbled together over the last uh, few uh, few decades? Do they have this kind of belief system? Then I look around me and we look at the 21st century and we look at the rise of the Islamic State who basically had a belief system. A literal, what they believed was a literal interpretation of the Koran and they attempted to put that literal interpretation into place and actually create a society based on what they believed, which many other Muslims obviously disagreed with, like the great majority of what was their interpretation of Islam. Now, even a great a belief system. And in the past, I mean, we were crippled, crippled, unfortunate word to use, but we were fettered, I should say. We were fettered down. We were chained down by belief systems. But in the past, most belief systems were those which were created by those who ruled us, whether it was religious leaders, whether it was secular leaders, the belief system that we somehow, because you've got a white skin, you're superior to somebody else, or if you've got a, a certain religious belief, your religious belief is the only religious belief that's uh, important because you're in direct communication with some type of mystery thing living, living in the clouds, you know, that determines your life. And obviously many, most people, you know, most people have some type of belief system. But I have noticed a change in the type of belief systems that people have with the growth of the World Wide Web. And whether people pick out bits of information here and bits of information there and esoteric uh, analysis here and esoteric analysis there and cobble it all together into some type of uh, belief system is quite extraordinary. And we've got uh, people running about, you know, with certain beliefs which really have nothing to do with reality. And it's a real problem. It's a real problem when we're chained down by a belief system that has nothing to do with reality, with the reality around us, because there are enough real problems in the world, the climate emergency, uh, future pandemics, economic crisis, uh, 
interpersonal relationships, and the list goes on and on. There are, you know, uh, uh, the loss of faith, people's loss of faith in institutions which have let them down. There's enough real problems in the world without creating new ones through these uh, uh, beliefs that have no basis in reality. And there are many out there. You choose the one you want. Go on the World Wide Web. You'll find somebody that will um, be able to pander to that particular belief. But pandering to belief provides no solution to real problems. Very simple. You can pray all you like. It's not going to rain until it wants to rain. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, I usually be very surprised sometimes by the lack of knowledge about the type of political system we have in Australia today. And I want to look at the type of political system we have and spend some time on it because I think it's important that we actually look at this because we are a country that has a constitution. And New Zealand doesn't have a constitution. Great Britain doesn't have a constitution. The United States of America has a constitution, although I don't think the President has ever read the constitution. And I'd be surprised if many of the listeners to the Anarchist World this week have ever read the Australian constitution, which is a relatively uh, slim document when you look at it. But what I found what I found interesting was the buffeting and what rekindled my interest in the Australian Constitution was the buffeting that was occurring between individual states and the central government in Australia. Because I don't think most people realise that we, we use the word federation. What what federation means? In the last decade in the 19th century, there was conventions held in this country about whether... Australia should become six independent countries which are based on the current states which were in place at that particular point in time, which was uh, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, Tasmania, South Australia, West Australia, or whether they should federate into one country. And there was a debate for a whole decade. And even at one stage, there was a debate about whether New Zealand should actually enter the federation. So there was this debate. But what we got was a federal system. And the state government, which federated, had extraordinary power at the time of federation. Because not everybody in Australia at that particular point in time wanted to federate, especially the people of New South Wales. And a number of referendums were held to actually gauge the uh, interest in federation. And it's quite interesting that um, it was in Victoria, the support for federation was about 95%, while in uh, New South Wales, it was about 51%. So obviously the people of New South Wales didn't actually want to uh, support the rest of the country. But that's, that's how we were thinking at the end of the 19th century. But the referendums were finally passed by each state and... Uh, West Australia actually passed its uh, referendum, uh, federation referendum after uh, 1900, uh, before 1901, and on the 1st of January, the Federation of Australia was established. And that federation was established on the basis of the Constitution, which was actually voted for in each separate state. Now, what has happened since the 
1901 is that state governments in a number of cases have voluntarily ceded their powers over their citizens to the federal government. But the COVID-19 crisis highlighted the extraordinary powers that state premiers are able to wield. Because state premiers are in, uh, or state governments are responsible for health and education. We saw state premiers close down borders with minimal uh, notification to anybody else. And in many ways, uh, most of them acted as if they had ceded uh, from the, uh, the Australian Federation. So it wasn't until after the Second World War that the uh, federal power gained taxation powers, the federal government gained taxation power. And although most of the power has flowed from the state to the central government, uh, the COVID-19 crisis highlighted the actual amount of power that the state government and state premiers are actually able to exercise over their citizens where you can see individual state premiers actually declare states of emergency in one state and no state of emergency in another state. They can actually uh, remove rights which we theoretically hold, which the central government believes we should have, and they just remove those rights by declaring a state of emergency. They do have extraordinary power. So let's look at the system. What type of a system we have? We have a federal system which is based on a parliamentary democracy. What is a parliamentary democracy? And a parliamentary democracy is a simple thing. It's like you've got a living human being and you've got a two-cell organism. As far as democracy is concerned, parliamentary democracy is basically a two-cell organism. Direct democracy is the living human being. So the concept of parliamentary democracy is that people every three to four years, depending on the state or federal election, voting representatives to make decisions for them over a fixed period of time. And we've seen governments make decisions, which has basically closed down the country in order to protect the citizens, residents and visa holders who are in this country at a particular point in time. So parliamentary democracy is a little bit, when you vote for uh, in a parliamentary democracy, it's a little bit like giving somebody a signed blank check and saying, here, mate, you do what you like with that signed blank check or you're my credit card, here's my PIN number for the next three to four years. And it doesn't matter what they promise you, uh, which uh, gets you to give them their vote. They don't actually have to keep any of their promises. The next time they're called to account is when the next election is held. And that's a parliamentary democracy. It's a very rudimentary democracy, and that's the type of democracy we have. Now, the people who created the initial constitution wanted a mechanism by which the Australian people could actually have an impact on the constitution, how they, they as a people, could actually change the constitution. There are two things. One, they created a high court of seven judges, I think it was five initially, of seven high court judges, whose responsibility is to interpret the constitution. And we saw them getting to knots regarding uh, people having a right to a foreign citizenship uh, a few years ago when we went through that uh, so-called drama. You could be born in this country, but as far as standing in the parliament and being a representative, you couldn't stand. Just extraordinary. But that's, that's the Australian Constitution. So you've got the High Court, and then you, 
the High Court, you've got two types of judges. You've got what I call activist judges who play around with the words, and you've got black-letter judiciary, which basically give you a literal translation. It's a little bit like people looking at the Bible or the Koran or, or whatever, and, and there are those that have a literal translation and those who take into account uh, current situation. So we saw the High Court about 20 years ago find an implied right to freedom of speech, but only a limited implied right during election campaigns because there was no freedom of speech. There were no rights incorporated into the Australian Constitution because the founding fathers, and there were founding fathers, decided that rights were not the type of thing that Australian citizens should have. Let's get back to the concept of how you change the Constitution. Well, you can change the Constitution for a revolution and tear it up. That's not, that's not going to happen. Soon. It's not something that's on the horizon in this country. It may be on the horizon in Lebanon, where they've got extraordinary economic uh, uh, difficulty. Extraordinary. So you're going through. But at the current stage in Australia, it's not a proposition. So how do you change the Australian Constitution? Well, over the last 121 years, only the Australian Constitution has only been changed eight times, although there's been over, oh, I think, 41 referendums put to the Australian people, and it's only been changed eight times. The only way you can put a question to the Australian people is by the majority in both houses of parliament passing legislation which outlines the words which we put to the people in a referendum. So you need a majority in both houses of parliament there is a way out. If the upper house continues to block the call for a referendum from the lower house, the Governor-General can actually... has actually got the power to put the referendum to the Australian people. Now, in order to ensure there are minimal changes to uh, in a referendum, you need a majority of electors in a majority of states to support the proposal for that proposal to be incorporated in the Australian Constitution. So we've got the ridiculous situation where parliamentarians who do not want to cede their power to the Australian people through citizens-initiated referendum never put up ideas in a referendum that are meaningful for the Australian people to look at and make a decision on. Now, you don't need a revolutionary society to have a democratic uh, system in Switzerland. I think it's about, I'm not sure the percentage, there's a small percentage of the population signs a petition in a limited period of time that they want a question put to the Swiss people. That question has to be put to the Swiss people. That's called a citizen-initiated referendum. Right? And a lot of people say, oh, they're not good because obviously rich people uh, dominate the debate and have all the money to push an idea one way or another. Well, the way of overcoming that problem is actually limiting uh, the amount of money which can be spent on a campaign and actually uh, uh, denying uh, private donations and just giving a fixed income to each side of the question to actually uh, debate that particular point. So in Australia, changes to the Constitution are very, very hard to achieve. And most of the changes, major changes to the Australian Constitution or most of the major changes that have occurred in this country have been through judicial activism. It occurred in 1992, the 
with the Mabo High Court decision, which highlighted that uh, First Australians, Indigenous Australians, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, had rights to land in law that had not been ceded in many cases to colonising authority. So the dilemma with the High Court and judicial activism is that the High Court judges are actually appointed by the government of the day. And they're appointed for life whilst the age of 70 when they're forced to retire at the age of 70. Although in the past uh, they were appointed for life, they have to retire now at 70. So when a High Court uh, vacancy uh, becomes available, obviously the government of the day is going to appoint somebody who they think supports their narrow agenda. So as far as constitutional change is occurring in Australian society, it's minimal unless there is a lot of pushing and shoving for change. Now, a lot of people say, oh, the Whitlam Labor government, very radical government, as if the Whitlam-led Labor government was a government that lived in a vacuum. The reason the Whitlam-led Labor government was such a progressive government, it made huge, uh, huge social reforms like uh, introduction of Medibank, which is now Medicare, universal health insurance system, the provision of pensions for single parents, the provision of legal aid, the provision of no-cost no divorce, no-fault divorce, and, and the list goes on and on, uh, the provision of community uh, radio stations, you would not be listening to a community radio station today. You would not have a community radio network without the reforms which were made by the Whitlam led Labor government. The whole purpose of creating a network of community radio stations across the country was to provide, before the before the uh, establishment of the World Wide Web, provide a third tier of information distribution and discussion. To, to the population, apart from the government gilded ABC and the corporate-owned media, there was no internet, there was no Facebook, there was no Google, there was no search engine. And so the creation of a network of community radio stations, the financing of these community radio stations, was seen as a mechanism by which to break the monopoly which the corporate-owned media held on people. Now, all these changes didn't occur by themselves. They occurred through debate, pushing and pulling and demonstrations which pushed the Labor Party agenda into a more radical direction after 25 years of fossilised Liberal National Party rule. It was the people themselves, through demonstrations, through activism, through who changed the policies of the ALP, which forced the government of the day to uh, introduce a more radical agenda. And the thing that's missing in 21st century Australia, which is quite saddening, is the fact that that grand ideas no longer exist. Now, obviously, there was a lot of uh, issue-orientated politics in this country, and we've seen that with gay marriage, we've seen that with the uh, climate emergency, seen that with the environment. But there are no specific organisations in this country today, political organisations, which are pushing a reform, revolutionary agenda, but more of a reform agenda to radically change society. And this is a perfect time for that. Now, the COVID-19 crisis highlighted how 
how delicate the balance is in this country, how a little virus can actually bring the country to a halt. The fact that there is no real protection for individuals. And the big debating point we should be having is not more deregulation, not more privatisation, not more corporatisation, not more globalisation. But the big debate we should be having is universal basic income to act as a cushion to protect each and every Australian resident and citizen from a future disaster, whether it's a war, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's an economic downturn, and how to fund that. And ideas that we've been floating, that's from public interest for corporate for some time, is a 1% stock market turnover tax and a 1% turnover, financial turnover tax, which would raise enough money to provide a a basic universal income for every Australian. And those Australians who continue to earn, obviously, money who don't need it, it's clawed back through the taxation system. Uh, We've seen the JobKeeper allowance uh, being clawed back through the taxation system. We can can do the same thing for universal basic income. So if you are interested in radical reform, radical reform, I encourage you to join public interest before corporate interest. And I keep banging on this pot. I've been banging on this spot for a number of years now. The dilemma is very simple. We have 550 people on the Australian electoral roll who have joined. We can apply for membership. And for example, Eden Monaro election, by-election, very important federal by-election. We could have actually put a candidate in that federal by-election if we had been a registered political party. Very simple. We could do it very simply. Any by-election across the country. So if you are interested in radical reform, you're interested in universal basic income, if you're interested in reconciliation and justice, if you're interested in increasing the public sector, well, now's the time to consider joining public interest before corporate interest. You can download the application form by going to pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Park Bill 3052. You can go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscana. Go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute, uh, anarchistmedia.org webpage. You can go to the Facebook page, Defend and Extend Public Housing, Public Housing, Everybody's Business, and the list goes on and on. But remember, you've got two choices. You can isolate yourself from the political process for the rest of your life and nothing will change. Or you can break out of that isolation, use the COVID-19 crisis as an excuse, break out of that political isolation, join us and become part of a growing movement to change radically this society. Because if you want your children and your grandchildren and any future generation to have a decent life, now is the time to uh, get involved. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist, this, Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. You can always leave minds at blood destruction, sorcerer of death construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday, 
Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.